Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for listening. I am your podcast host, Ken Levine, and this is a very special episode of Hollywood and Levine. And I know when you see that on a television show, usually it means that one of the lead characters comes down with tuberculosis, but that's not what the case is here. This is an actual crossover episode between two separate podcasts. How many of you are familiar with Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs? Probably more than are familiar with my podcast. Well, Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs is the Frasier-related podcast that is co-hosted by Kevin Smith and Matt Myra. Every week, they take another episode of Frasier and they analyze it. Actually, it's about a two-hour program and maybe three, four minutes of that time, they analyze Frasier and the rest of the time they talk about everything else. Well, a little backstory, about a year ago, they analyzed an episode of Frasier that my partner David Isaacs and I wrote, and then they invited me to come on the show, which was very cool. So I had a really good time telling about my Erzatz career and everything. We had an awful lot of fun. And so when I started my podcast at the beginning of the year, I contacted Kevin and Matt and said, hey, I'd really love to have you guys come on my podcast. And Kevin said, hey, I'll do you one better. Let's do a crossover. So part one of this is Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs, and this is the second part. And I know that means that there's probably a lot of you listening to this podcast for the very first time. Welcome. Please subscribe. We also do a lot of other fun stuff besides interviews. I tell funny stories. I give advice horrible reviews, play tapes, an awful lot of fun stuff. So again, welcome and please subscribe. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Kevin Smith about his process, both writing and directing, who his inspiration was, how he got into the business. It actually became a very long conversation, and so you don't have to be on the Stairmaster for an entire hour. I'm breaking it into two parts. This will be part one, and part two will be next week. Now, a disclaimer before we begin. The language may get a little profane, or at least a little more profane than usual, so please drop off the kids before you start listening. Okay, here we go. Kevin Smith and Matt Myra. Matt, by the way, is also the executive story editor on the Goldbergs, and that will come into play a little bit too. One thing that we have on this podcast that they don't have on theirs, jingles. 
So let's hear one now and get it going. Hollywood and the Vine. So Kevin Smith, let me see, where do I know that name? So common. Uh, <laughs> Football player. African-American descent. Uh, didn't have an incredible career, but, you know, I have some yardage, and, and I've moved on. That's the oh, other, those the were the questions other. I had. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't go deep on my football career. It, was, it hurts. So short. let me ask you, are you a writer who directs, or are you a director who also writes? A writer who directs. I've never felt like a director in my life. I, I don't consider myself a director, and neither do most of the critics who talk about my work. <laughs> um, I, I, first and foremost, I mean, this sounds highfalutin. I've only come to this later in life, but storyteller covers everything. You know, if I podcast, if I'm writing, writing a movie or even directing a movie or or uh, doing the TV show like uh, Comic Book Man, the show we have on AMC, jumping over and directing an episode of The Goldbergs on Matt's show. It's just storytelling. But first and foremost, it, I, it's writing for me. Like if somebody put a gun in my head and said, pick one. At this point, I'd probably pick podcasting because it's even easier than writing. Cause yeah, you know, writing's not, hard. Writing is hard. This is easy. And I've done it for years. I've been writing since I was like, what, nine or something? But podcasting, I've only been doing for 10 years. And I like that because it is, it's like the closest, I'm not a musician, but podcasting is the closest you come to jazz, the way I understand it. Because you're having this conversation and you pick up the notes and it's the notes that aren't played and so forth and so on. Writing is a solitary act. I know you've written with people and you write yeah. with people, but for me, it's always been very masturbatory. Me alone in a room going, this makes me feel good. And then <laughs> I take it one step further because I knew early on, even as a kid, that nobody was ever going to take my scripts and turn them into something. You know, too many, far too many clever people out there, good writers with great stories to tell that deserved like cinematic treatment to be realized, realized from script to screen. So when I saw Richard Linklater's movie Slacker, and I said, oh my God, this motherfucker, he just made a movie. He don't give a fuck. He doesn't know anybody. He's in Texas. Bumblefuck Texas. He ain't New York. He ain't fucking California. He's making flicks. That was inspiring to me enough to go, okay. Now I can write a flick. I used to be like, I'll never write a script because nobody would ever make it. Who would I give it to? What would I do? But after I saw Slacker, I was like, okay, you can write a script. And as long as it's doable, you can shoot that thing as well. You can make it and bring it to life. So it wouldn't just be something you worked on and sat in a fucking drawer. Manufacture for use is a big part of my process. Like, don't do it and then just let it sit there. That's why I could never be like a studio writer because... I have friends who have like, I got 10 scripts that I sold and I live off of and they're unproduced. And I'm like, what? Like, how can you live like that? But they're like, I can live like that. That's how I make my living. But I came in through a different door. I didn't come through the traditional path. I made something and it worked out. And suddenly people are like, what do you want to do next? So Miramax picked up that first movie. We Which made was Clerks. 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 Yeah. And then from there forward, people would be like, what do you want to do? So it became... Fright, frighteningly easy. So you wrote that script. Now, do you outline? No. God, with Clerks, that was just, um, let me think about my average day in the store and then just make it more entertaining. Or all the greatest bits of me working at convenience stores over the years, I'll compile into one day. And I still don't outline. I, I outlined for the first time fairly recently because I had a TV project that was episodic in, in nature and they asked as part of the process BBC America was like we want to know the story of the back seven episodes and all that shit so I actually had to sit down and be like alright where does this thing go right. but that's like not even traditional television whereas you know you, you're doing one long movie when you're doing something like that mm -hmm. like you're getting to plot it from start to finish so, you know, I guess a, an outline was helpful for everyone to see where you thought about going. And it was also helpful for me as a writer. But I doubt I would ever 
commit to that. Like I wrote Jane Silent Bob reboot, which is a sequel to Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, and I wasn't like, I better break out the cards and figure this fucker out because <laughs> because a lot rides on this, the intellectualism alone. So you know, some shit you just dive into and write from the gut. But that one, I had to actually be methodical about it as per their process, not mine. So are your first drafts usually very long? I never have a first. uh, I do have a first draft, of course, but it's not the traditional first draft of like, you know, here's 140 pages and I'll trim it down. Uh, What I tend to do is write uh, until like I don't feel like writing anymore and then go back and smoke and read and, and revise within. So I'll start a scene that goes 10 pages and then... Over the course of a day or two days, I will shrink it. And not by virtue of the fact, like, this has to come down. But you just read it, and you're like, all right, that wasn't that funny. Let me change this. Let me change this. It would be funny if I layered this in here. And so rewrite it and bring it down the process. So nobody ever really sees the a true first draft of what I do. They see the first full script, but right. I kind of revise as I write. So by the time it gets to people, it reads closer to something that's finished. Now I outline because I need to know where I'm going. That helps. And even though, uh, and of course I'm from television where you have to, you know, Frasier episodes are only 20 minutes and they're very intricately well, there's, plotted. There's also a reason why they're, they're a wonderful, funny and stand the test of time. Like a lot of shit I do won't stand the test of time. A lot of those Frasier episodes will stand the test of time because somebody put thought into it. It wasn't just like, <laughs> I'm going to sit down and say some funny shit. Because when you sit down and say some funny shit, it could just be funny culturally in the moment. Right. When you sit down and write a Frasier, you guys weren't going like, let's make Milli Vanilli jokes because everyone knows who that is. Like you guys didn't dive deep into pop culture. Every once in a while, there'll be a Star trek type thing. But you kept it cultural, not pop cultural. And that's why you can pop that show on now. And it never feels dated other than when Matt points out nobody would wear two-button suits or something like that. <laughs> but the We pointed lack- it out at the time. <laughs> yeah. And the distinct lack of cell phones, I guess. But generally speaking, there's something to be said for outlining. You'll come up with a more quality piece of work that will probably stand the test of time far longer. But I was never interested in quality, just quantity. Like, I just wanted to make as much as I could. And the moment they picked up the first thing I did, that opened the door this much. And I was like, I'm just going to keep going. I, it was never about, I want to win an Oscar. I want to make something fucking good. Or I want to make something classic. I just wanted to produce. Because the longer you produce, the longer you can stay in the room. They don't kick you out. Now, do you have a drawer full of no. 40 pages? And no. There, no. I, I pretty much, there's shit now. There's shit that I produced that... I intended to do, and it hasn't happened yet. Hit somebody is this hockey miniseries, which has been taking a long time to put together because nobody gives a fuck about hockey. So I need one TV thing to pop. Like right now I'm working on this BBC America show called Sam and Twitch, which is adapted from uh, the comic book characters created by Todd McFarlane, who created Spawn. They're two cops who deal with the supernatural. So if that works, you know, this is the way I understand it. You've been in TV. You've been in TV. You guys could tell me differently. If it's successful, one of the first things they ask is, like, what do you want to do next? And so one of the first things I would hand them is hit somebody. And granted, like, BBC is not known to do sports miniseries, but it's not really a sports miniseries kind of set in that world. So that one's sitting there waiting to go. There's a script for Clerks 3 that will never be produced because the guy who played Randall doesn't want to do it anymore. So that's kind of frustrating to have, like, given birth to something where I'm like, I fucking love this. Like, this really sums up who I am and then not be able to produce it because – one of the key elements just doesn't want to be involved. Hey, well, they had different James Bonds. It's true. And <laughs> right? I thought about it at one point, like, maybe I could replace him with somebody equally beloved from our repertoire, like uh, Jason 
Lee who played Brody? What if Jason Lee played Randall, who's played originally by Jeff Anderson? It, it just doesn't feel like the same thing. Like, so how did you get Clerks made originally? Because you were in film school, uh, right? Which you dropped out. I dropped out pretty quickly. I was there for about four months. I went to the Vancouver Film School. Uh, I met Scott Mosier, who went on to be my producer. Right. And I still podcast with him and Matt podcasts mm-hmm. with him as well. Um, I met Dave Klein, who was my, my first DP on the first three movies. And then, and then he was off for two or three and then came back and did a lot more with us. Um, Dave now shoots Homeland and, uh, he was on True Blood. Like he's gone on to a nice career as well. So I met those cats in film school and then I came home to Jersey cause I went to film school in Vancouver, quit after four months and started writing clerks. I actually started writing it while I was at film school rather than put the rest of my tuition, which was only nine grand. So five grand <laughs> toward the school. I was like, I could put it toward production. So I dropped out, went home and finished writing clerks. And I worked at that convenience store in the video store where the movie was set. And I'd heard an interview that Robert Rodriguez had done on Howard Stern like years ago where he said, you know, you, the, the problem with most first-time filmmakers, they write above their station in life. They write shit they have no access to. They write space fantasies, and they won't be able to produce them on a low budget. He's like, you should just take stock of the shit you have and write that into the movie. So he's like, with El Mariachi, I knew I had a, a guitar case, a bus, and a turtle, and I wrote all three of them into the movie. So I was like, all right, that's fucking sound advice. So I wrote clerks at the convenience store because so i was like well i have access to a convenience store it's visually interesting um it, it puts you in contact with a bunch of revolving door of cameos and shit not mm-hmm. unlike a sitcom to some degree and so never having the presence of mind uh, in my head everything was very separated i'd watch sitcoms my whole fucking life but clerks never seemed like a sitcom to me i'm like this is indie film and then when the movie got reviewed for the first time somebody uh, who was it the guy in uh, entertainment weekly Owen Gleiberman, he goes, this is what a sitcom will look like in 20 years. He's like, people will sit around and curse and do shit like that. And I remember being insulted by that review, but he's actually right. Like, he was, he was profound. Um, so I, I just wrote this thing that, like, you know, it was a day in the life working at the store. And I figured, you know, Richard Linklater made Slacker. It worked for him. Robert Rodriguez made El Mariachi. It worked for him. I was like, I'm going to sing my song in this part of the world. So I dropped out of school halfway through. I didn't think I was getting anything, and I wanted to save the money. I told Dave and Scott, I was like, I'm going to go home. When you guys are done with film school, come to Jersey. We're all going to make a movie together. Really, it was like whoever's done with the script first, we'll all go there. And Scott had written a script, which I liked. um, And I was going to play a guy who sat in a closet and wrote and stuff like that. That was my bedroom. But then I sent Scott clerks. He, He finished before me. And then I finished like a few weeks later, and I sent him my script. And Scott was like, we're going to do your script. We're not doing mine. And I said, why? He goes, you, you, are, you wrote a screenplay. He's going, I wrote something that looks like a screenplay, but this is, this is a script. We should shoot this. This is a more complete movie. So him and Dave came out to Jersey, and uh, we shot the flick at the convenience store. And then we spent a few months cutting the movie in the video store next door. I had set up the steam back, you know, three <laughs> plate, six plate editing system with film strip and stuff. And cut the movie together and took it to the IFFM, uh, Independent Feature Film Marketplace. That was the goal. Hopefully somebody would find it and we could find somebody to distribute it. Nobody was there. It fucking died. But there was one guy in the audience named Bob Hawk who was real big in indie film. He started telling people about it. So the next day, after this disastrous screening on October 3rd, 1993, 11 a.m., that was the slot we had at the IFFM. You pay 500 bucks, you try to pack it with as many press or... Um, distributors as possible. It's an awareness screening. Right. And nobody was at ours except people that worked on the movie and this one fucking dude. And the next day, I got a phone call from Amy Talbot in the Village Voice 
And she was like, I heard your movie was the undiscovered gem of the marketplace. And I was like, nobody was there. How'd you hear this? And I knew who she was because I had a framed article about Richard Linklater that she had written in the Village Voice and mm. stuff that was kind of my inspiration. I kept over my, my desk. So she called, and then she's like, I can't tell you who told me, but he said I should see the movie. And then a guy named Larry Kardish, who ran the museum, who still does, the Museum of Modern Arts, New Directors, New Films Festival. It's the only festival you go to once as a first-time filmmaker. And it's a sister to the New York Film Festival. He called, and he was like, I hear your movie, something to see. Can you send me a tape? I said, who told you? He said, I'm not at liberty to say. And then the third guy who called that morning was this dude, Peter Broderick, who wrote for Filmmaker Magazine. And he said the same thing. He's like, I hear your movie's amazing. Can you send me a copy on VHS so I can watch it? I said, who is saying this? Like, <laughs> nobody was there. And he said, there's a guy there named Bob Hawk who is big in the indie film world, and he loved your movie. He's been talking about it for 24 hours and stuff. So that one person made all the difference. Bob Hawk just started telling folks about the movie, and all those folks started asking about it. Then we got a producer's rep off of that, this guy named John Pearson. He repped people like Spike Lee and Michael Moore and uh, who else? Like a bunch. He had a list of famous film names uh, in his history uh, for first-time films that he sold for him and stuff. So he liked the movie, and he jumped on board. At first, he was like, I like the movie, but there's no audience for this. He goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but you made an audience for which there is no movie yet. One day there will be, but good luck in the future. I'll buy you dinner <laughs> if you're ever in town. <laughs> then he called me up a week later. He goes, I've been watching it a few more times. He goes, I can't shake the movie. There's something here. Maybe there's a play. He's like, I can't guarantee I can get you distribution. But we can get this movie a little bit of attention. So we started working together, and eventually he did get the movie sold to Miramax. Harvey Weinstein bought it at uh, Sundance after our final screening. And it became a Miramax film, and that started my entire career. So Miramax had just been bought by Disney at that point. Believe me, the movie wasn't bought because of people like, this is brilliant. The movie was bought because... Politically, Miramax needed to do something that year. They had just been sold to Disney. Harvey and Bob sold their company for $50, $55 million to the Walt Disney Company. And the, there was no internet at that point. But the criticism was so loud, it broke the internet in 1993, 94. Because people were like, oh, my God, everything that's wonderful about Miramax is going to go down the drain because now they're owned by Disney. So goodbye crying game and shit like that. They're going to go soft. So Harvey Weinstein had to send a very clear message to the press that like Miramax is, is Miramax, even though we're owned by Disney, and will always be Miramax. And so he went to, to Sundance that year and bought the filthiest, grungiest, like most amateurish-looking American film there was. Planets was really awesome. just did line up for you, didn't they? It really did, dude. Yeah. I know, believe me, I'm not, I don't sit here in this wonderful house and go like, talent did this, luck and timing did this. However, I will take credit for stepping forward. You know, at the end of the day, none of that shit happens if I sit at my parents' house and wish for it. We actually still had to make the fucking flip. Mm -hmm. And that was completely uncharacteristic for who I was. I was not a go-getter. I didn't go to college and shit. I tried. I dropped out. I was content to, like, work at the convenience store. I loved that job because I could bring a TV in and watch TV while I worked, and it didn't <laughs> demand a lot of me. And there was a video store next door. But the one moment where life kind of shined a ray, you know, and I watched Linklater's movie and said, fuck, is that possible? That was the only time in my life that I ever showed any ambition whatsoever where I was like, okay, I want to do that, but how do I do that? And I figured, all right, I'll go to film school. And I tried that, and that didn't work out. And even when that fucking failed, and I had to come home, and that was really tough because when I left, I was like, I'm going off to film school, everybody. And then when I came home four months later, like, hey, Hollywood, that was fucking <laughs> film school, Hollywood. How'd you do? We are back. Is Hollywood here now in New Jersey? <laughs> so you got to eat shit, but, like, don't worry about eating shit. You'll eat shit your whole fucking life for one reason or another. And it's way, it tastes way worse when you're eating shit because you didn't 
didn't get off your ass and try the thing you wanted. If you're eating shit because you tried something and it didn't work out, and some other fucking people who never tried anything are telling you you failed, that shit tastes the easiest. That goes down like cotton candy because you're like, these fuckers don't know what they're talking about. It's like a dog criticizing a Martian. It's like you fucking don't even understand. You'll never make that move. So I, I, I'll be the first to tell you that I have zero talent. But I will say that it does require you to do something in order for luck and timing to happen. I got very fucking blessed, but the movie does exist. And we said something at the right time. If we'd made that movie a year before, a year later, nothing happens. But in 1993-94, we said something about being overeducated and underemployed, which resonated and suddenly... I had a career. But it was a good movie. Yeah, it's I mean, all, all, of, all of that is true. All of that is true. But, luck but and still, time. they had to see the movie and they had to like it. A lot of people make really bad movies. I, look, a lot, a lot, I can find you many people would say Kevin Smith is one of them and Clerks is definitely <laughs> one of them. But for whatever reason, because the stars align, because like somebody needed to make a statement about like this company still does fucking hardcore indies, I, I got brought into the room and it was amazing. Not only did I get brought into the room, but I got brought into the room at a historical moment in cinema history. I was at the place, the epicenter of the cinema of cool. Like Miramax was redefining what fucking movies were and and would change it from even now. We still live in a post-Miramax world in terms of what stories get told and what goes out to the mainstream. So I got to go along for like this magic carpet ride where you were there. You were like one of the 1984 to 88 Edmonton Oilers. You could do nothing fucking wrong. (laughs) You were like Pixar from fucking Toy Story all the way up to like Toy Story, well, all the way up to Cars 2. You could fucking do nothing (laughs) wrong. Everything you did was like, oh my God, that was Miramax. Even Ratatouille, you go, yeah, okay. Yeah, that fucking works. It all worked. (laughs) Especially Ratatouille. But but, so that was was great to be there for. And, And I was... I got residual reputation for that. Like, I was rubbing shoulders with fucking geniuses, like Quentin Tarantino and stuff, and Robert. And people would lump me in with them all the time and be like, oh, he's one of those guys. So I benefited from being a part of that in a big, bad way. But I know I got there for that very reason. Harvey says no. He's like, you're out of your mind. The movie was funny. But I, 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 was, I remember being alive at that point. And I remember See? how much shit they were taking. And then they put this movie out, and, like, every article was like, Jesus, Miramax's commitment to American independent film is alive and well, even in the Disney era, because look at this fucking picture. And uh, that's that paved the way for a quote-unquote career. I got to be me for the rest of my life. That was the only thing that Clerks did that, that, uh, that, that I can't guarantee other people. I always tell people, like, they're like, how do I do what you did? Or how do I, how do I get to maybe make films or blah, blah, blah? And I'm always like, hey, make Clerks. It worked for me. But if you can't do that, just make sure you try to do something where at the end of the day, you get paid to be you as opposed to doing somebody else's thing or something like that. Like I appreciate what you two guys do immensely, but I could have never entered like that working for somebody else. Like it's, I've, I've heard Being about on the staff process. of a show that's too frustrating thing. where your idea, like I live in a world where I'm like, it's not best idea wins. It's like my idea wins because nobody else has any fucking ideas and so i might as well do it but when you work collaboratively you know in a room of 15 people it's like best idea wins and like i remember the first time i collaborated on comedy was on the clerks cartoon Mm -hmm. and i had good fucking people working with me dave mandel who runs veep now um used to do seinfeld used to do seinfeld Mm -hmm. came from snl like dave's a genius uh, Steve Luckner, uh, Brian, who's over on Simpsons now. We had like really good, funny people. But I was like, 
I, I couldn't, it, it was like trying to speak French with, and I took four years of Spanish. Like some words were similar, like, oh, they're all romance languages, aren't they? <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, I don't understand how you do this. I don't understand how you write together. I was always asking like, so wait, do I write some words and then pass it to you and you write some words? Because I came up <laughs> completely differently. So it's only like now later in my career where you know, by, by virtue of the fact you've done one thing one way for so long and shit, you know, and you get comfy doing it, you can switch up, you know. And lately in the last five years of my career, I've just been trying to burn it down. So I just do anything different, like to just to fucking see how it feels at this point rather than just be Kevin Smith professionally. So working on like sitcoms like the Goldbergs and stuff is fun because it's like you, you walk into this world and you are superfluous as fuck. You're a third nipple. Yeah, and you are now... Uh, you've, <laughs> Nothing. You've directed an episode of The Goldbergs. Two. Two. Two episodes of The Goldbergs. They even had you back. Mm. You've done a couple of episodes of Supergirl. You've done The Flash. So what is it like? Because I've done a lot of freelance directing for sitcoms, and I always feel like I'm a substitute teacher. Absolutely. I you mean, I, I, des- I describe it thusly. It's like being the host for SNL for the week. Like, you know, Ben Affleck walks out on the stage for Saturday Night Live. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, Ben Affleck. And somebody in the fucking rafters is like, fuck this. And they take him out. Everyone goes, oh, my God. But they could still make that fucking show. You know, he's not the integral part of the machinery. You know, they're like, we liked him, but, like, we got laughs to do. Same thing when you step onto the set of the Goldbergs. It's like... Everyone's like, oh, my God, it's Silent Bob. But if somebody was like, I fucking always hated Silent Bob, <laughs> and they take me out from the rafters, like, Wendy'd cry a little bit. But yeah, they would sure. go make that show because they make that show every fucking week without a director. So the director on a sitcom or an episodic is, like, that's the one element that changes all the time. And it's also the one X factor that could, like, be the difference between a wonderful show and a terrible show. So what do you bring to it? Wow, that's what I tried to fucking figure out for a long time because I couldn't do what I normally do in my world, which is like, oh, say this. Yeah, oh, say this right. line. Oh, do it like this. Ooh, I thought of something else. Do say this. Because that's what I do when I'm making flicks. But in this world, we go cut, and then, like, on Goldberg's, I'll turn to um, Lou. Lou, uh, who, what's Lou Schneider. Lou Schneider, who comes from the world. Uh, he worked on Raymond, Raymond. for Raymond, years yeah. and years. And Lou's literally doing that job. Like, Lou's sitting next to me, and then he'll run over and give the kids or anybody alts. Here's ten lines we came up with in the room. So we'll shoot the one that's in the script, and then we'll shoot a bunch of these alts. And I don't move on. In my world, you move on when I'm, when I'm satisfied. I'm like, hey, right. we got it. Moving on. In that world, I'm like, cut. And then I'll turn to Lou, yeah. and Lou will be like, oh, I just want to grab a few more things. It's very akin to being a commercial director. So I, I experienced, this year, experienced it years ago. I went to work on a commercial, and uh, you have to shoot their fucking script. Mm-hmm. And you don't move on until literally the client is like, yeah, we like Get that. a little bit closer on the butter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, and, and, and it's arbitrary, and it's fine, but it's like it extends the process. In a weird way. And, and during my first tour of duty on the Goldbergs, like I think at the end of the first day, I was telling Adam, like, you should keep the money because you're just paying me to watch people make the Goldbergs at this point. <laughs> and he's like, no, no. He's going, everyone's happy that you're there. And that's what I figured out that I bring to it is enthusiasm. Like, you've been there when I've directed. 100%. Like, it's, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm fun to be around, but it, it makes work not so fucking hard. He and, brings the most of the directors we had last year, certainly. Mm-hmm. Kevin... Seems to be the most excited to be there. That helps. Like, because if you're like, oh my God. More than David Lynch, when David Lynch directed a couple of episodes (laughs) of the Goldbergs. When it went weird for a while. Yeah. 
when uh, when Wendy had no mouth but screaming eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, that's the only thing I honestly feel I could bring to it. Like for years, we would talk about on this podcast and even yeah. before this podcast, like. The guy who did all the Frasier episodes. Jim Burroughs. Jim Burroughs. You're like, Jesus, he's directed more TV than I'll ever see in a lifetime and shit. And everyone loves him. All the fucking actors. You can't find an actor on this planet doesn't go like Jimmy Burroughs. Oh, fuck, they love him. And you're like, what's he, what's he do? I don't get it from the outside. I was like, what is it that he does? Now, having worked on TV, I get it. He just fucking makes everybody chill and happy. And when people are chill and happy, they're at their most fucking productive. So even though I don't bring anything to the Goldbergs in the way of like, here's a bag full of fucking funny and new ideas. Like you can't. Like I sat down with Adam when he was uh, doing the tone meeting on the first episode I did. And he goes, um, I don't know how to tell you this because I know you're from movie world and stuff. But we shoot this show very simply. Like we got a wide a cowboy and a close. That's about it. And I was like, I don't know how to tell you this. That's all you were fucking getting. I don't know if you ever <laughs> see the movies I make, but that's what I do. So you can't even affect the look of the show. I can't come in and be like, we're going to do this master that whips around here. They don't like, they don't like it. They like it to look exactly like the show. So in that point, I was flummoxed as to like, what do I do here? And then I thought like, oh, I'm just here because people know me from the movies and shit. And so it's a popularity contest. But then they don't bring you back if that's the case. They bring you back if the cast and crew are like, I like that guy. I like when we were working. Like, he made things fun. So that's enthusiasm, like, I guess. And now I'm telling kids, I used to tell kids all the time, like, go be a director. It's the easiest fucking job in the world. That was before I directed television. Now I'm like, oh, my God, you must direct TV. You don't have to do anything. Other people will do everything for you, and you will be responsible for two things, saying action and I don't even say cut. I don't even say action. I let the first AD do it. Ryan, they got a first AD who literally directed my episode. From my estimation, for what directing is, I felt like Ryan was yeah, the director of my episode. Yeah, if you have a good episode. DP, too, he can tell you where to put and the Jason, cameras. And Jason, who's a wonderful and DP. And, and the few times I was like, Jason, can we try it over here? And he's like, nah. <laughs> I was like, really? He goes, yeah, we tried that in like episode nine. Like He's been on the yeah. show since the beginning, and they shot every fucking variation there is. So it's very strange. I lobbied at one point. Like, not lobbied. I wasn't, like, going into the DGA. But I told them, I was like, you guys don't even need a director. I told them on the CW shows, too. I was like, you're wasting your money hiring a director. Like, just let whoever's on set, like, Grant this week is the director of the episode. Or fucking this one. Just pick somebody who's there. Because it's so damn arbitrary. And and there's not a fuck ton of freedom anyway. It's not really the director's vision. Next week, Kevin talks about directing his own movies. He has a very unusual, interesting approach. I've never heard any other director do this. Also, I'm going to ask him specifically about two of my favorite scripts of his, Chasing Amy and the ill-fated Superman screenplay. Also, he's going to have a lot of great advice for young filmmakers. And as an added bonus, you're also going to meet my daughter, Annie Levine, and her writing partner slash husband, Jonathan Emerson. They are currently co-producers on Kevin Can Wait for CBS. Actually, Kevin is the one who is going to introduce them. So all of that is next week. Again, thanks so much for being here. Please subscribe if you haven't. Also, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, go on back. Check out some of the archives. There's some pretty fun stuff. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Randy Thomas, Matt Myra, and Kevin Smith. Part two with Kevin and Matt next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.